and welcome to another edition of YCT Matters. This is Carol Platt-Lebow, the president of Yankee Institute, and we're delighted to welcome Ed Ring. Ed is the founder and senior fellow at the California Policy Center, which he co-founded in 2013. And Ed, we are delighted to have you with us. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you. And uh, Ed is... uh, a policy expert and very astute observer of all things California policy oriented, which is why we thought it would be a a great service to all of us here in Connecticut to be able to tap into his expertise on California energy policy and what it has done to the once golden state, Uh, especially because as we have been working with these Connecticut EV mandate proposed regulations. Uh, As you know, uh, everyone here in Connecticut, uh, we have had a situation where Connecticut's legislature first voted to adopt California standards rather than the EPA standards for cars back in 1994. And it became mandatory in 2004 on a bipartisan basis. Uh, Governor John Rowland, a Republican, signed the so-called Clean Cars Bill into law that year. And so that was 20 years ago. And now we have uh, a proposal by Governor Lamont that was repudiated, well, that he withdrew uh, just recently to require every car being sold in Connecticut to be an electric vehicle by 2035. And uh, he still wants to have that policy go through. There just simply hasn't been sufficient legislative support. But Ed, You know, one of the things that we were hoping you could talk about is what these energy standards in California have have done. And uh, and so can you talk to us a little bit about how energy policy has evolved in California and the changes you've seen? Well, sure. I mean, in the old days, California had big coastal cities with uh, what they would call an inversion layer, the wind coming in from the ocean would get tripped against the mountains uh, on the other side of the Los Angeles basin or on the uh, east side of the Santa Clara Valley up in Silicon Valley. And you would have leaded gasoline and it would get trapped in the atmosphere and you had smog. And uh, that was when the term smog was invented, smoke and fog. And it was uh, unhealthy air. So getting rid of leaded gasoline, for example, was something that probably needed to happen. And you know, in those days, the environmentalist movement was uh, probably taking care of things that we just absolutely needed to kind of get to as we uh, evolve as a as a civilization and as we uh, develop new technologies. I mean, look at Greenpeace. Greenpeace evolved to save the whales. And now, I guess I don't want to jump ahead. What I'm trying to say, though, is environmentalism has gone to a, a new extreme where they're kind of doing things that really aren't helping the environment at all, but they're really harming the economy. Uh, and I was, really making I, people's lives worse, right, Ed? Well, the cost of living in California, uh, almost exclusively because of environmentalism, is prohibitive. And people that try to come here uh, to have a middle-class lifestyle can't. Uh, people who live here uh, and bought their homes a long time ago are able to adapt, but for the rest of the population, and and they are trapped in those homes because Prop 13, California's famous property tax law, uh, makes it impossible for them to to move and not have their assessments 
uh, recalibrated, and then they, of course, then they become victims to what's happening to everybody else. The uh, the big shift really began with the climate change uh, panic that really became a full spectrum propaganda campaign. Let's call it that because that's kind of what it is. Uh, but really, about 20 years ago, and Al Gore, I think the uh, Inconvenient Truth that came out 06, 07. Right. A big push on television. I mean, it, it was just astonishing how it dominated the news all of a sudden. And if you watch national news today, the mainstream, you know, ABC, CBS, NBC, they lead with climate. Almost if there's not a major international or national news story every single day, it's either about a heat wave in the summer or a storm in the winter. That never used to be the case on on the news. Uh, and it's an example of how it's being hyped. And as a result, California legislature wants to set an example for the whole world to follow, one that they're coercing uh, the United States, the other states here uh, to adopt. And it's completely impractical. It's raised the cost of energy and everything that follows from energy. You know, water requires energy. You can't pump water around uh, the state. You can't treat water. You can't treat wastewater uh, if you don't have energy. You you can't have hot water if you don't have energy. About 20% of California's energy is for water. So they're constraining everything in the name of stopping emissions. That's creating scarcity. Scarcity is creating high prices. Well, you know, Ed, what's what's interesting and uh, and uh, sort of unfortunate is my understanding is when the Clean Air Act passed in 1970, California already had stricter standards than those that the EPA were setting out. And so the EPA gave every state a choice. You could either go ahead and follow the federal standards or you could follow the California standards. And although a lot of states here in the Northeast don't have the the topography of California, you know, with the mountains and the ocean, et cetera, et cetera, that may have required some of the original standards in 1970 or whenever, they nonetheless decided, oh, we're progressive. We're going to go above and beyond. And so a lot of the issues that you're pointing out that are afflicting California are now being exported to these other states uh, in terms of when energy prices are high, every price becomes high because almost every good is transported, uh, you know, and when your gas or your fuel becomes higher cost, your cost of living is going to go up. Yeah, everything goes up. When energy and water is uh, constrained, they constrained the building of uh, new freeways in the 1970s. Governor Brown, in his first terms as governor when he was in his 30s, Governor Brown uh, canceled all of the freeway projects that were planned. He canceled a lot of the water projects that were planned, uh, which would have delivered uh, low-cost energy and water. It would have created an infrastructure backbone that would was planned to be uh accommodating a, a population up to 50 million in California, of course, is barely 40 million at this time. But in the 70s, it was only 20 million people in California. 
So we're living on an infrastructure that was designed for 20 million people, and we've got twice as many people living here, which explains so much about the high cost of uh, energy, the scarcity of water, the con- traffic congestion. Uh, so, so it's something that started a long time ago, but again, they're they're now they're moving it over to things like vehicles. You know, the the way we've cleaned up our automobiles uh, in the last fifty years is extraordinary, and the amount of pollution that comes out of a modern car is almost negligible. So they have to go after the CO2 because they really don't have a lot left to scrub out of automotive emissions. And if you look at the potential we have, if we're really concerned even about CO2, why are they banning advanced hybrids? If you if you run a car on natural gas and you give it the engineering, for example, that a Volt had, which where the, the, the uh, internal combustion engine wasn't even connected to the drivetrain, it just turned a generator, which turned electric motors, uh, if you and if you built a car like that and ran it on natural gas, you, you'd have negligible CO2 pollution, much much less actual, <laughs> you know, actual dangerous pollution. And those cars, those advanced hybrids, and we have no idea where that technology is going and how good it's going to get. They're being excluded from California's automotive future in favor of pure battery-powered electric cars, and that's crazy. Why do you think that is? I mean, what is the point of that? Some of it's special interests and some of it is a genuine uh, concern that's really lost all sense of proportion. You know, and and it's it's misguided in both regards because you can come back again to the fact that California's state legislature and politicians feel like they're on a mission. You know, they want to save the planet and they want to show everybody how to do it. And what they're what they're not realizing is nobody's going to do this. I mean, the uh, other American states will do it because they'll be coerced into it. Because I was I was about to say that's the problem. Uh, They're they're setting a pernicious example and that the rest of us have to try and fight back against. We've got the biggest uh, state bureaucracy. We've got the biggest economy, which is the market that all the major corporations don't want to ignore and don't want to retool for two markets. And we've got the biggest congressional delegation. You know, we used to have the Speaker of the House for years. We had the uh, we've got the vice president in there. So there's all of these influential politicians. I'm not sure I'd claim her, but that's just a side point. Go ahead. Well, you know. What's going to happen is America and California is going to coerce America into doing this, and America is going to attempt to coerce the world into doing this. And apart from some of the European countries where there's already a lot of uh, realization, especially with the uh, when they had to retool because they lost all their Russian natural gas, and they're starting to think about energy a little bit more realistically, a lot of these wind uh, manufacturers, the people that are building the wind turbines and putting up these giant wind farms are pulling out, you know, because it's not economical without extraordinary subsidies. Uh, and Greenpeace, as I started to talk about earlier, is now defending offshore wind, and which obviously, demonstrably, and talk to the New England Fisheries Association, is killing whales and, and harming other aquatic life. And, and, and that just illustrates how far these special interests have flipped. 
so it's not just the governments and the economy. It's the NGOs that are all on board with this extreme agenda. And of course, special interests benefit from it. If you're a wind turbine manufacturer, you're lobbying hard for this kind of stuff. Well, that's the thing that I think, you know, enough people haven't been uh, had a chance because of the defects in some of our our media um, to be fully informed about is, in a sense, what a grift a lot of this is. A lot of the people pushing for these restrictions are people who benefit from the subsidies on the other side. And a lot of it's really, really ridiculous. And what's very troubling, I also think, is you know, these people seem very eager to steer us away from the kind of fuel that America possesses in abundance and steer us toward the kinds of things that we would have to rely on our adversaries for, you know, like the car batteries. They're they're uh, that's cobalt. Uh, and am I correct in thinking, you know, China controls a lot of the supply of cobalt and in the meantime, they're also continuing to build coal plants and no one is making any of the effort. Any All of these climate zealots seem determined to cut back on the quality of life of their own constituents um, while doing very little to really uh, elicit meaningful change from people who actually are doing things that are demonstrably injurious to the climate like China. Yeah, the Chinese are uh, pursuing what you, you know, we like to call an all of the above energy strategy. Uh, It isn't that they aren't developing renewables, but they're doing it in a more judicious way. They're they're developing all forms of energy and they're, uh, you know, they're going to roll out renewable power to the extent the technology can uh, be competitive. As far as our imports, you know, California is the worst because not only do we import almost everything that we need in the form of renewables, that would be photovoltaic panels and batteries and and wind turbines. And we're getting a lot of it from China. We're getting a lot of the wind turbines from Europe. We're not manufacturing any of that in California. Some other states, at least, are manufacturing some of this stuff. California isn't even doing any of that. So, We import all of these products, you know, and the other thing is when you talk about the special interests behind this, obviously there's a lot of money in international trade, but there's also a lot of money in government subsidies. Yes. Uh, If you look, for example, at the fossil fuel companies who ought to be more, they're actually starting to fight more aggressively, as you may have read, you know, I think it was Exxon just sued a couple of their shareholders who are just been launching one nuisance lawsuit after another. And so they've countersued and we don't have time to get in all the details about that. But the point is, most of the incentives for the fossil fuel industry are just to accommodate this stuff. And they're looking at billions of dollars available, for example, to build pipelines and develop caverns to sequester carbon so they can keep their industry alive and collect all of these subsidies at the same time. And this is a complete waste of what's going to amount to hundreds of billions of dollars if they follow through with all of this. And why is that environmentally safe to pump compressed CO2 into the earth? We don't, the environmentalists are against fracking, which is a, just a tiny amount of gas injection to extract oil from shale. But but we're going to inject 
gigatons of CO2 into the crust of the earth. But again, the, the, you know, the corporate interests look at the subsidies and go, well, you know, we've got to, we've got to play ball. I was going to say they got to go where the money is. Yeah. Um, (laughs) um, You know, and as we start to wind up a bit, um, can you talk to us again, just so that our listeners understand how complete the shift because you're a longtime Californian. I lived in California between um, 1998 and 2011. But even since I left in 2011 to the present, I see the just the stark deterioration in the affordability, in the quality of life from what I hear from friends who still live there. And you know, the thing that I think people in Connecticut can't understand clearly enough is what happens to the livability of a state, what happens to the affordability of a state, what happens to just the quality of life for regular people if they just go blindly down the radical environmentalist rabbit hole. And so as we wind up, will you just try and paint a word picture for us, Ed? Um, You know, the difference between California, even even 25 years ago, which, you know, to young people sounds like forever, but to those of us who have a bit more, shall we say, seasoning, it's really not that long ago. And the difference that it makes for for normal people who've been forced to leave their homes if they can afford to and, and, and go elsewhere and make a new life. Yeah, you know, conservatives and libertarians have, and I think it's appropriate, but, you know, they get somewhat fixated on social issues because they're a little bit uh feel a little bit more immediate you know especially if you have families and children and they're being exposed to some of these some of these social issues and indoctrination but the in the meantime quietly you know the uh the agenda of the so-called net zero movement is moving forward swiftly and it in it in it infects every aspect of your life so you're not just talking about the fact that California has five dollar. I think it's down to four twenty-five uh, at the cheapest gas stations per gallon of gasoline. It, you're not just talking about forty to fifty cents a kilowatt hour of electricity, which is ridiculous. It's it's so unnecessary. You're also talking about an agenda that's trying to curtail anything that could be deemed to cause emissions of CO2. So that means you have to have cities that can't grow outwards, but have to grow inwards with so-called infill and urban service boundaries, where everybody is uh, mandated to permit, for example, multifamily uh, housing in a residential neighborhood where everybody relied on the zoning when they moved there and invested their life. You're looking at, as a result, housing scarcity, where the average house is 800 i think $850,000 in California the average home price which is about which is more than 10 times the average household income in California and this kind of unaffordability is a consequence of trying to well to trying to achieve this so-called net zero and as you know we could go on and on but we're almost done here but this is counterproductive to the environment as well the only thing that you're trying to achieve is this so-called net zero uh 
you know, at the end of the day, it's necessary to take another look at whether or not we're really in a climate crisis. Because if you concede that argument, you've lost half the battle right away. And that's the trump card that's being played in every state legislature and every agency with every public comment, everything that is uh, policy oriented uh, surrounding uh, energy and water and transportation and housing policies now has to address the this climate crisis. And if you're not willing to challenge that, you've lost half the battle before you've even gotten on the field. You're pushing water uphill. It's something that people have to be willing to look at some of the credible, uh, very responsible, very qualified climate scientists and ask yourself, is this a crisis? And even if it is somewhat of a crisis, ask yourself, should we be adapting to this in a responsible way that looks out for the interests of working families? Or should we be doing whatever it takes because if we do whatever it takes special interests benefit you exterminate the middle class and you make almost everyone dependent on government subsidies to live and that's that's a a downward economic spiral that you can't at some point re recover from so we have to be willing to challenge all of this and you know ed it reminds me of the way that the Fauciians approached the pandemic. There was no responsible balancing of of risks. Uh, there was just this entire, you know, our goal is to stop any spread of COVID. And that, you know, even if it means that we're going to have a generation of undereducated kids, even if it means we're going to devastate our business community, whatever the price to be paid, that's the only objective that matters. And it's the same sort of unbalanced mindset that you see among too many of the people focused on this. They are not worried about the, the quote-unquote collateral damage that their monomaniacal focus is going to uh, inflict. And the people who pay the price are working people and the middle class. And it is, it is awful. It is just awful to have to witness all of it, especially when a lot of it could be so easily avoided with a better informed legislature and calmer heads and an approach to policy that doesn't view environmentalism as a religion. Yeah, it's it's being used as a religion, and at the same time, we 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 have to be rational about it, but we also have to expose the special interests behind it, and explain that you know just because you talk about net zero doesn't make doesn't um, automatically give you moral high ground. There's hidden agendas everywhere, and people have to be aware of that. Absolutely, and I think the point you made about. Um, conceding, you know, the, the the climate crisis, it's really writing a blank check to government for totalitarianism. You're absolutely right. So uh, I appreciate your taking the time uh, to warn us about uh, how dangerous it can be for Connecticut to follow California down the environmentalism uh, rabbit hole and uh, all of the insight you've given us this morning. Uh, thank you so much, Ed. Well, I hope it's helpful. Thank you. Thank you. And this has been Ed Ring, co-founder of the California Policy Center in 2013 and senior fellow at the California Policy Center. 
Thanks, Ed, and thanks to all of you for joining us. We look forward to having you with us again on the next edition of YCT Matters. This is Carol Platt-Lebow, president of Yankee Institute. We appreciate your having been with us. I'll show you